Welcome back to KVLA Talk 1580. I'm your host, Angelique Francis, and this is Living in the Sweet Spot. We define the sweet spot as the intersection between power, divine timing, and performance to accomplish a purpose. I'm bringing you conversations with amazing overcomers. We talk about miraculous Kairos moments, and we talk about a whole lot of things in the sweet spot. Well, today we're going to talk about breast cancer, surviving, and thriving, um, post-breast cancer, and sort of how you can um, affect your life and your journey. Um, today, we're going to uh, joining me will be first Alisa Scott. She's a mother of three amazing children, a lover of life who looks for the blessing, and she's a practicing physician's assistant at a very busy hospital in the Bronx, New York. And she takes time from all that she had to do as a as a facilitator, but she had to become a patient and learn how to receive care from others. We also have Heather Bond who's a mother, a partner, and a grandmother. She's also the director of marketing and special events for a very busy establishment. Also joining me will be Ricky Fairley, who is a triple negative breast cancer survivor and thriver, she likes to say. Ricky's personal purpose, passion, and mission is to bless and to get others to focus their attention and research so that they can eradicate breast cancer. She does this in part by coaching what she calls best breasties through the breast cancer experience. She recently started When We Trial, which is a movement to educate and motivate black women to participate in clinical trials. I am so, 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 so happy to have all three of these ladies. They've had a different journey. They've had a unique journey, and they're going to share it so that... um, we can help empower and get you motivated to um, get some early detection and do all that you need to do to be healthy. All right. Welcome, ladies, in the sweet spot. Thank you. Nice to be here. Happy to be here. Thank you so much. Well, I know each of you are coming from different places. Um, You're in New Jersey, Elisa. Uh, Heather's in New York. And Ricky, where are you? I'm in Annapolis, Maryland. Okay, so we have a lot of East Coast here. Um, I know all three of you, and I am a little familiar with your journey, but today I just really want to talk to the people listening, and whether it's men or women, we are in this together, and the best thing we can do is to educate and help each other along the way, right? So in this first segment, let's just talk about your individual journeys quickly, if you can. We have about three minutes, and... I would love for, let's start with Elisa. Um, Elisa, your diagnosis was when and what stage was it diagnosed? And just quickly tell me how that, how you were diagnosed. Uh, I was diagnosed in March of uh, 2021 after I reported to my doctor that I had uh, a lump in my breast. Things moved really quickly. Uh, I had a mammogram, uh, biopsy and a diagnosis probably within two weeks of reporting it to my doctor uh, after having decided that I would seek treatment because I hadn't decided. That was that was a hard decision for me okay. to decide that I wanted 
Okay, we're going to talk about why that was a hard decision um, when we get into the conversation. Heather, what about you? How were you diagnosed? And in what stage? You were stage one. Stage one, um, DCIS in 2012. And I hadn't gone for a mammogram in a couple of years. I was supporting a dear friend who was actually succumbing to breast cancer at the time. She was stage four, had young children and needed someone with her through all of her medical treatment and chemo. And we were scurrying around trying to find a hospital that really could do any and everything at a very late juncture in her journey. And one day she said to me, when was the last time you had a mammogram? And I told her that it had been about two years. And she looked at me like I had lost my mind and said, I refuse to speak to you until you've gotten a mammogram so you can go home now. And I said, well, thank you, but I will probably not be able to get an appointment tomorrow. And we have a chemo treatment scheduled for you tomorrow. But very shortly thereafter, got a mammogram and immediately, uh, well, actually they wanted to do some some more research to see what was going on. And it was discovered very quickly that I, um, I had breast cancer. Okay. And, um, okay. Thank you, Heather. And then Ricky, what about you? I was diagnosed on an annual checkup. My doctor did an annual checkup and um, I had, I was initially diagnosed as stage 3A triple negative breast cancer. And I can explain that later. Um, but I did a double mastectomy. I did a lot of chemo, a lot of radiation. My cancer came back a year later on my chest wall. My doctor said, now you're metastatic, get your affairs in order. You have two years to live. Um, I got more resources and a better doctor and I'm still here 10 years later. So I'm very blessed. You are very blessed and we're happy to have you and you have quite a journey and a lot of information to share because you have taken your own personal journey and created a nonprofit and you are educating women on how to survive and thrive, right? <laughs> All right. So, so when we come forward, we're going to talk more specifically about each of your stories and sort of how you felt through this journey. What, I mean, it had to be a scary time and maybe continues to be concerning, but we're going to talk about how you managed, how you got on the other side. And um, we're going to do all this when we come forward. This is Living in the Sweet Spot. I am an endangered species But I Welcome back. If you're just joining me, we're living in the sweet spot with uh, three wonderful women. We have Heather Bond. I have Elisa Scott. And I have Ricky Fairley here. We're talking about breast cancer. And as you can see, I have three amazing survivors and thrivers. And we're talking about their journey. So, Heather, um, we kind of, we, we got a little bit of your beginning but tell me, once you got that diagnosis, what was going through your mind? How long ago was the, was this, by the way? It was about 12 years ago. Okay. So what was going through your mind when you got this um, diagnosis? You're in the middle of assisting another friend um, who was, Absolutely. you know, you saw all hands were on deck for this friend. You go get a mammogram because yes. you promised. And then now you have to deal with your own prognosis and your own um, journey. So what were you feeling and what were you thinking? Well, uh, when I had the mammogram and they wanted to do a second one, uh, the phone was ringing like crazy and it was my friend. And she was pretty sure that my lack of response meant that um, 
there was something wrong. And so I went to the doctor very shortly after, if I'm not mistaken, both you and um, Elisa came to my doctor's appointment with me. And the doctor did convey that it was, uh, uh, she thought it was DCIS and that the options were um, a lumpectomy. She thought that she'd be able to clear the margins. And so by I'm sorry, one, uh, Heather, what's D, what is DCIS? Sorry, uh, ductal carcinoma in situ. Okay. And I went uh, for, a, uh, for a, a lumpectomy about a week later and then had to wait for the biopsy to see if the margins were cleared. And 10 days later, I was informed that they needed to go back in. And at the time, I had two young children who had no time for a mom to spend much time or energy on anything other than getting on the other side of this and getting home and tending to them. So within the month, I had had two lumpectomies. And the second lumpectomy also reflected that the margins weren't cleared. And at that juncture, I decided to go ahead and get a bilateral mastectomy. So let's, um, let's just, you know, there was no time no between that, right? How quickly was you decided, did you, did you even have time to feel or was it a, was it an intellectual decision? Was this just a, well, very tell much me. So. Mm -hmm. I, I did not have a whole lot of fear, to be honest with you. I had, um, an, or a sense of urgency more than anything and a responsibility to get the cancer out of my body so that I could get on with my life. And that is really how I, I, I went about this. Mm -hmm. So my aggressive approach, I, I don't think that I uh, was numb, but I knew that I, I was basically raising my children uh, on my own, if you will. My, I was discovering that my marriage wasn't working and that I needed to be all hands on deck for my children and there was no space for this. So um, fear did not dictate much for me at all. I was willing to do whatever it took as quickly as I could so that I could get back out there in the workforce and get on with raising my children. Okay. So you worked very quickly and um, okay. then you had this double mastectomy. I, I'm going to just jump over to Elisa for a second. So Elisa, your diagnosis, it was real, it was hard hitting. You work in hospitals every single day. You see a lot, you know a lot. Tell me how it impacted you, your diagnosis. Uh, I think my diagnosis was sobering. And um, I was in a place I had never been by the time I got to that point because I lived in fear. And something about the diagnosis and having decided that I was going to uh, proceed with treatment I had to, I, there was no, there was no space in my life for fear at that time. So in a very strange way, it was, um, it was freeing because I stopped living in fear. And then I just decided that because I was going to seek treatment and because of the way that I live is that I believe that, you know, I look for the good in it. I just... I knew that it was all going to be okay. I just had to get to the other side of it. And so I, um, I, because of the support that I had, I just, I think it was a peaceful journey. And I just, it was, it was, it was miraculous almost because it was obvious to me that God was in it from the very, very beginning. I think between the time that I got diagnosed and my team at Sloan Kettering had been assembled, it was maybe three weeks. And, uh, 
being in medicine, I know that that is just not the way that things typically happen. Um, and the fact that I had assembled a team with the help of, of very dear friends. I had the director of oncology at Sloan Kettering, which is the premier institute, cancer institute in the world. And I had the director of breast surgery. And that's just not something that happened. And, and everything just, um, it fell into place. And um, I think I was somewhat methodical in terms of, okay, what's next? Let's do it. And, um, and it all got done. And uh, in the end, it's amazing because whoever think I could, I could say this, but it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. And um, that in and of itself was pretty amazing. Okay. So you mentioned fear, right? Fear is what cripples so many women and men when they discover something that doesn't feel right, doesn't, that they know there's something foreign going on in this body. And fear is what keeps people from getting treatment, whether it's breast cancer or any other kind of um, ailment, right? So you're in fear, but what was it that you had to tell yourself to say, you know what, am I going to, is this going, am I going to live in fear or am I going to be willing to fight? What, what, can you remember that turning point? Uh, my doctor was the first person I told about it. And, and I told her that I just really wasn't sure. And I'm going to cry thinking about it, but I wasn't sure that I wanted to seek treatment. You know, I, um, I didn't want to have surgery. I didn't want to have chemo. And um, and she said, Alisa, you have to do this for your children. And it was that, I think it was at that point I decided, okay, I'm going to do it. And, um, and, and I had, again, it was the point at which I stopped living in fear because I thought I was, I thought I wanted to just live with it and, and let my life play itself out because there were a list of things I didn't want to do. But once I decided to do those things, then it just kind of it balanced itself out. Right. It, it felt like such a huge mountain to get over. But when you went through it and went through it with faith and, and with your team and with your family and support, it wasn't as terrible as you thought it would be was serious, but it wasn't as terrible. And it was also because, I'm sorry, it was, I, I changed my approach to things once I decided to seek treatment. Got it. You know, I didn't, you know, I, I just remember the point at which I was going into surgery. I, I changed uh, how I thought I'd feel afterwards instead of feeling like I woke up and had been mutilated, which was one of the reasons I didn't want to have surgery. I had decided I was going to wake up and feel like I was free of cancer because that's what I was. The cancer would have at that point been removed from my body. So it was really, it's a mindset and it's in there. Life is relative and, and it's about perspective. Absolutely. And so I changed my perspective on things. Absolutely. Absolutely. Ricky, what about your experience? Once you were diagnosed, once you got this information, how did you feel first? And then how did you move through with those feelings? Well, I was shocked and mad because I was really busy. And I said, I don't have time for this. I had a very busy life. I was running an ad agency. 
Um, I was the breadwinner for my family. I was the rainmaker for my company. My daughter was a sophomore at Dartmouth. I was paying tuition. My my husband didn't work. My husband of 30 years. And so I had a lot of things yeah, on I'm my sorry. To, I'm to sorry. Handle. I'm sorry. You're what? Your husband? My husband of 30 years. Yeah, he's my husband. <laughs> Got it. Um, <laughs> Thank he you. was one of the cancers I had to get rid of. You know, I had to learn that there were other cancers in my life. But, but looking back now, it's been 10 years. And I know that God prepared me for this journey. So many things happened in my life before I had cancer to prepare me for it. And now I know that I had cancer because God gave me a purpose. Mm. And now I'm, li- I'm living my purpose. I'm living my dream. I'm living the mission that God has set out for me that I didn't know it at the time, but um, I had to get close to death to get there. Um, but I learned that this is what I'm supposed to do in this world. And that's what I'm doing. Um, sure, I was afraid. I mean, I think the only day I really had a pity party was when my doctor, you know, when the cancer came back and my doctor said, you have two years to live. And I said, you know, I went out and bought a sports car that day. <laughs> but, <laughs> but that was my only, only pity party. My doctor was like, what is wrong with you? Um, but <laughs> I've learned a lot through, the, through this experience and, um, you know, it's something that, that I'm, I'm here for. I had the most severe cancer you can get. It's called triple negative breast cancer. Black women get it at three times the rate of white women. And it's the only breast cancer subtype that doesn't have a drug to prevent recurrence. So you may hear of something, you take something for five years. I don't have a drug. And so I was in a pretty dire strait from being sick perspective. I, you know, diagnosed at stage three, the A, and then it coming back again, which it very readily does. We have very few treatment options and, and it's just killing our young black women. And so I know my purpose now is to talk about this and help other women deal. So um, I wouldn't wish this breastie club on anybody, but once you're in it, you have unconditional love and trust for these amazing women that, that were already badasses to begin with and just become stronger, better badasses after this journey is over or as you continue. All right. All right. I'm loving that. Thank you for sharing. I mean, you talk about your purpose and, and you being prepared for this. And the most important thing that I, besides, I knew a little bit of that. But when you talk about dis-ease, right? I, I mentioned when I talk about disease, I talk about the dis-ease that we allow ourselves to be put through in life, right? And that creates an environment for all types of things to go wrong, right? Including cancer, stressors that, uh, you know, we're not blaming it on the was been, <laughs> but it didn't assist you through that journey of staying healthy, both spirit, mind, and body, right? I know that my cancer was caused by stress. And I think that happens to a lot of black women. And now there's a body of research that's basically validating that black breast cancer is a different disease than white breast cancer. And some of it is due to stress on your molecules as you have stress on your body. Um, And I had to learn through my process that my peace is non-negotiable. And not only did I have to get the cancers out of my body, but I had to get other cancers out of my life. And I will walk away from the phone. I will see you. Bye. I'm out. Love you dearly, but I got to go. And I will eliminate any possibility of stress. I don't drive in traffic, but I know that it affects so many black women that we have to, you know, keep ourselves healthy emotionally, mentally, as well as physically. Right. And I without see, cancer. And Heather, I see you shaking your head. So what did you want to add to that? That truly stress was the culprit for my disease. I'm the first woman in my family that's ever had cancer. 
it was quite amazing, breast cancer in particular. Um, it was very clear to me that cancer was the smallest thing that I had to eliminate from my mind, body, and spirit. But once I awakened from my final surgery, my bigger challenge was figuring out how to graciously exit my marriage with everybody landing on their feet. And that was my commitment. And uh, we, we all survived. Wow. Well, I think this is such important information. I mean, the, the words that keep uh, popping up in my spirit right now is uh, attention, attention to what your body is saying, right? Adjusting yes. your attitude and then taking action. So those are three A's. That's attention, attitude, and action. So when we come forward, we're going to talk a little bit about how we resolved, right? How we got through the treatment. What were those tools? You know, what were the things and the thing, the daily regimens and all that you did to um, get on the other side to create these health, healthy bodies that you have now? I thank you right now from the bottom of my heart for each of you being here and being authentic enough to share your journey. This is Living in the Sweet Spot, and we're talking about breast cancer when we go forward. Welcome back to Living in the Sweet Spot. I'm Angelique Francis, and I am having an amazing conversation in and around breast cancer. I have three women with me. It's Ricky Fairley and Heather Bond and Elisa Scott. They're talking to you very intimately and very authentically about their personal journey, about the fear, about the dis-ease that they believe um, have had created an environment for cancer to take hold. And now we're going to talk a little bit more about solutions and how to, what to do and how to get, get through it. So, Ricky, when you are first diagnosed... Um, what is it that a woman needs to understand to do and how quickly is it important to do it? Get the best care you can get the best care team. And I think you heard from Elisa that, you know, she, I got an amazing care team, but get the best care team you can and fight like a girl, fight. you know, fight like a girl, fight like a girl. Um, but but Ricky, that's easier said than done in our community. We already know there's inequities within the healthcare, right? You go in, tell, tell your doctor, oh, I feel something, and they say, oh, well, let's take six months and we'll watch it, right? No. Okay, no. so talk to no, me about that. No, we can't do that. And, you know, we don't talk about health enough in the black community. We don't talk about it at home. We don't talk about it with our families until someone's dead or dying. And so we need to have these conversations about breast health with young, with our young women. Um, but right now, the state of black breast cancer is horrific for black women. And it's really the most fatal disease that black women face. We have a 41% higher mortality rate. So think about that. For every 100 white women that die of breast cancer, 141 black women die. Black women like us, we have a 71% higher relative risk of death from breast cancer than white women. Black women have a 39% higher recurrence rate. So that's why it's so important to do the right treatment because it's gonna likely be likely to come back. And black women under 35, get breast cancer at twice the rate of white women and die at three times the rate of white women. So this is no joke for us. Well before they have their, their first mammogram at age 40. These are staggering numbers that you're presenting. They're staggering. I mean, no one talks about it in, this, in these terms. I mean, why do you think it's different? Why do you think it's uh, so alarming? Why do you think it's um, that, that, that it returns and recurs so often at such a high rate? Why? 
Well, our disease is different. The cellular makeup of, of black breast cancer is different. But when you look back in history, 20 and 30 years ago, when most of the standard of care drugs were made, guess what? There were no black women in those trials. So we don't know that those drugs work effectively in black bodies because it's never been tested. And we don't have a body of data to say that the drugs are working. And frankly, they are not. They work for the three of us. We're very blessed. But there's a lot of women that they're not working for. So we need better drugs. We need the drug that has black women on the label because the drugs are not working for us. And right now, we only have 3% participation in clinical trial research for drugs that are currently being developed. You said 3%. So we are off the table, 3%. So we are, that's zero, right? So we are... We are not being considered, our black bodies are not being considered as drugs for breast cancer, and really most medications are being developed. So we have to get involved in clinical research and get to advance the science for black women. The drugs are not working for us that we have. So I think maybe the reason why so many of our community, in our community, are not um, signing up for these clinical research, because I think some of the history. So if you can talk about, yeah, the history of people taking cells and doing things and and benefiting and all that. But I just want to drive home because I know you're very passionate about it, Ricky, how important it is to get the data from our experiences, right? And how unique that data is. You, You already know there's a general distrust within our community. And I understand where that came from. But but really, one more time, drive home why it's critical to have these um, people participate in these trials. And what does it mean? If I said to you, I have, if someone comes to me, and I believe that happened with Elisa, someone comes to her and says, would you participate in a trial? This was at Sloan. And you have to decide, yes or no. Why would we and why wouldn't we? Is there an answer to that, Ricky? Um. Well, you know, there's a there's a misconception that you're going to get the sugar pill and die. And that is a fear in our community. And clearly that earned mistrust is real. It exists. It's real. But because of that bad history, there are so many rules in place and laws in place now to protect patients. But really, the, there's a huge myth, even in our breasty community, that, you're, that there's a sugar pill. Well, in cancer research, there is no pl- sugar pill. There is no placebo. You're going to get standard of care. So the standard of care means a drug that already exists on the market that's, that has some history, right? And maybe that and a new drug or a new drug that could work better for you. You get better care in a clinical trial. We have better outcomes for patients in clinical trials. And you're more closely watched and, and really given a better standard of care of treatment. So okay. it's something work that we have to do. It's work that we have to do. And your 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 likelihood of, of being successful is better when you're in a clinical trial. Okay. So you started you recently started when we trial a movement yes. to educate and motivate. So you are you are talking about this from a lot of historic this is not just your opinion. This is done, this is based on research. This is I want everyone to understand that you were just invited to the White House to talk about these subjects and to 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 further educate communities on every level, right? Um, let's talk a little bit about support, your support system. How important was that, Elisa? It was everything. Uh, and and like I said before, it was about perspective. And so I knew that I was going to have to depend on people, which was something I wasn't used to doing. 
But I said I wasn't going to resent it or feel bad about it, that I was going to consider it a love fest. And it was just, it really, it was heartwarming and it made a big difference, you know, to have my friends and family kind of move in with me for those days when I needed to be taken care of and to actually have people sign up to help. And, um, and I know it made all the difference. And I know uh, it is a deciding factor for people, you know, how well they do, I think think through different disease processes is what is your support system and uh it was vital to my recovery and uh i you know i i would have had to but it would have been a lot harder to do it without it so so what i'm appreciative to all those loved on me absolutely heather what about you what was your experience you were going through um your marriage was sort of um uh, changing the look of your marriage. We're not going to call your ex a, a was been, but we, we because I know him too, and he meant well. And I think he wanted to be helpful, but sometimes, it, unless you're going through it, sometimes our partners don't understand how to help. So, what would you say to that? Yeah. I woke up and looked at him, and he looked like he had just gone through surgery. He had, he looked like a deer in headlights. And my girlfriends, rallied around my children and around me, pardon my emotions. In a way I could not have dreamed of any and everything that I needed from pillows and creams and drives to doctor's appointments and my children being schlepped to their activities and meals being prepared. Everybody all hands were on deck in a way that I could have never, ever, ever imagined. And it is what saved my life. And they supported my ex-husband as well because he was really struggling with this. This was, I realized at that point that um, this was much bigger than, than, than he could manage. And the ladies moved in, they swooped in and helped facilitate every possible need that was existent. Well, the most important thing I hear is that we have to be willing when we're going through something like this, be willing to ask for help. Right. So many times we come out like the super women that we are, you know, we're amazing. We, you know, I've seen all of us go through our community, through our village, show up for everyone, but you got to show up for yourself. And one of the things you have to do is learn how to ask for help. So we're going to keep talking about, attention and attitude and action when we come back okay we're gonna go forward we're gonna talk a little bit more about this in the sweet spot we are talking to three very very um open and honest women, Ricky, Heather, and Elisa, We're talking about breast cancer. So Ricky, tell me about your support system. What is, what is it that um, you needed and uh, created for yourself? Well, my friends from my whole life knew that I wouldn't ask for help. You know, I'm a superwoman like we all are with the purple cape, right? So they just showed up. So every Sunday, somebody would leave, somebody would come, and they, it went on for a year. We never talked about it. They just made it happen. And so after I got better, I started a club called SMAD, Sisters Making a Difference. And we all just support each other. We still have a prayer group every Sunday night. We go on a couple of retreats a year, and we just take care of each other. But they did everything in my house. They helped me get divorced. They did everything. They helped me 
go through chemo and I just, I never asked because they wouldn't let me, but that's the kind of support that we all deserve. And, um, and, you know, it's, it's something that we, you know, as black women, we just have to, you know, take care of each other. Well, it's interesting because you talk a lot about your journey and your faith and spirituality, but you also have said to me off record about, um, the church and, and faith and sort of, you know, just leaning on your faith as opposed to just uh, as, as opposed to leaning on facts and science. Right. But that it all works right. together. That's, that's the importance of this conversation is all things work together. All things, all work, things together. work together. Right. Right. What about resources that are available? Um, Heather, you had a comment about resources and where do you yes. get them? Because it's one thing for Elisa uh, to have a great experience at Sloan and, and I believe you were at Sloan as well, Heather. Um, but everybody doesn't have access to the top leading, uh, you know, breast cancer foundation. Heather? Wherever you are, you want to ask for any and everything. There are advocates at these hospitals. You can talk to your doctors. If there is something that you are in question about, ask. Asking, you will find you will probably get more than you expected. If it is a, a, a goodness, my brain, <laughs> when you when you have your implants, if you need, if you don't like them, chances are. They will do something, but you have to ask about it. So there are resources. It's not going to happen unless you, there right. are multiple resources. There are bra services. There are lymphatic drainage services. There are so many things that the hospital can avail you, but you must ask for it. Right. And being afraid to ask and not understanding that you have a right to the best health care yeah. there is available. Yes, Ricky? Um, part of our When We Trial movement and our website, whenwetrial.org, is really not only to educate about cl clinical trials and the importance, but also to teach Black women how to advocate for themselves. Yes. And we have to demand, what, and the way we de define health equity is expecting the doctor and demanding of the doctor that the care that they would expect for themselves. It's only the golden rule. You know, do unto others as you want to be, you know, what you want done to yourself. And so how would you treat your mom? How would you treat your grandma? How would you treat your daughter? And we have to demand that level of care from our doctors. And it's okay to say, hold on, wait a minute. Is this what you would recommend for somebody in your family? Or is this what you would expect for yourself? And ask for whatever. Right. And Elisa, uh, I believe you're shaking your head to that as well. Yeah, and I would just like to say, don't be afraid to ask questions. I think no. um, just too often times we feel like we should know. And and I always, I, I train physician assistants and when I talk to patients, I say, you know what? Your doctor will never be too busy to bill your insurance company. So they should never be too busy to explain it to you so that you can understand it. Awesome. And, uh, right. you know, don't be afraid. Absolutely. That's I mean, the question. Absolutely. And the more information you have, and if you don't understand, ask for clarity. That's what they're there for. A lot of times medical professionals will talk over your head and use terms that you don't understand. I'm sorry. Excuse me. Will you explain that? I want to understand. Do not leave that office without clarity. And then don't be afraid to call back and ask if you forgot to ask a question. We're going to talk more when we come forward. We are living in the sweet spot with Heather and Ricky and Elisa. This has been an interesting hour. We have three ladies. One had 
uh, breast cancer staged at one, one was staged two, and one was 3A. So we've had three women talking about three very serious diagnoses, what they did to uh, survive and how they're thriving today. Heather, if there's one thing that you could um, tell your loved one, your daughter, your best friend, what advice would you give? First is to seek the best possible care at your disposal. The second would be not to wait and to be proactive. And the third is to look for the blessings along the journey because there are multiple ones. And life becomes increasingly sweeter on the other side of this. I, I For me, um, I feel like even if my life were shortened, the quality of my life has changed exponentially as a result of this disease. And how I love how I live and the things that are important to me um, are vastly different than those uh, those feelings and experiences prior to cancer. Previously, yes. So Alisa, what advice would you give? I believe in your journey. Uh, it, it can be a scary time, but I think if you approach it with faith and support, knowing that, uh, like Heather said, there are blessings in it, no one would ever wish cancer on themselves, but there is a joy on the other side of it. And um, it is, as one had said to me, beyond understanding. Um, so just, uh, and, and of course, to get the best care that you can. All right. And then Ricky. Sure. Um, you know, you can't prevent breast cancer. You can only early detect it. So I tell everybody, check the breast that you love. I know you have a pair, men and women. Check your breasts, check your breasts on a monthly basis, know your body, talk about it with your families, talk about health with your families, put it on the kitchen table and make it a conversation that's important. Um, I also say, you know, faith is what got me through, you know, Proverbs 3, 5, 8, you know, Proverbs 3, 5, 7, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not, not on your own understanding, he will direct your path. Proverbs 3, 5, 8 is do not be impressed by your own wisdom, give it to God, relinquish your faith and and seek peace your peace is non-negotiable it can only come from god all right all right and ricky i don't want to leave this without you telling people how they can reach you and uh, get involved in your nonprofit. please tell us sure we have all kinds of resources questions to ask your doctor everything at touch bbca.org touch the black breast cancer alliance if you want to learn about clinical trials do you want to go to whenwetrial.org and you can reach me at Ricky at Touch BBCA. I answer every email and every text all and, day long. It's and, my purpose. And everybody should reach Ricky. She's a wealth of information and knowledge. Thank you, ladies, for living with me in this sweet spot. Thank you, Heather, Alisa, Ricky. You have all been wonderful. Continued health, light, love, and joy to each of you. You are listening to KBLA 1580 in the heart of Los Angeles. Coming up next will be the Lyric Lounge with Tasha Teal and Euro. Please follow me on Angelique in the Sweet Spot so you can find out what's happening next week. And uh, thank you again for everyone from LA to New York. I love you. I can smile again.